Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Kimberly Reyes joins me on the podcast this week. She spent 109 days in hospital following an emergency caesarean section. And in this podcast, she reflects on what she learned about healthcare and how the outcomes for patients could be improved in the future. Here to share her insights is Kimberly Reyes. Kimberly, you're very welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, I know that you had a baby at around about the time that New York went into the lockdown for the pandemic. But there's a big story around this, and this is what I'd like to explore with you today. Talk to us about that time. What were your hopes and aspirations just before you went into hospital? She was actually born the day New York locked down. So it was, if we had the newspaper for the day, it would actually have announced the, the pandemic. Um, so it actually preceded it a little bit. So it was an odd moment where I watched the hospital go from normalcy to, to full pandemic. And so my water broke at around 23 weeks, which was right at the end of February of 2020. And so I, as anyone knows, if your water breaks and you're a little bit less than six months pregnant, it's not a great story. And so <laughs> I went into the hospital and the prognosis was, okay, well, stay long, stay pregnant as long as you possibly can. And so the original goal was to be in the hospital till June when she was originally due. Um, and so best laid plans. And so we went about kind of just being on bed rest and, and hoping for the best. And over the course of the next few weeks, we were able to, to do that. We passed the, the point of viability, which many people know is, is this kind of very crucial moment in a pregnancy. Different hospitals have different number of weeks, but it hovers around 24 weeks. And so when I first went into the hospital, it was made very clear that if she had been born that day, there would have been nothing they could have done or would have done rather, I suppose. So those are two very different statements. And then when she actually came, it was sort of, we had eased to a, a routine. And so every morning they would come and she would be put on the monitor and we would kind of find her and I had what's called an anterior placenta. And so she was behind the placenta, often pretty hard to find. And one of those things they say, oh, well, you start feeling them kick. And it's like, not if there's an anterior placenta, <laughs> you don't. And so, you know, I, I sat there with a stethoscope trying to find her in vain. And they said, you're not going to hear her. She's well in there. And so that morning that, that she was born, they had put her on the monitor and she just was kind of not being able to be found. So it was one of those things where we tried and we turned this way and we turned that way and we turned back and forth. and. After probably about an hour or two, they said, oh, you know, let's let's go downstairs to labor and delivery and sort of do a, a more thorough exam and see what's really going on. And so they went to prep for the exam and I saw everyone panic and it turns out that the cord had delivered, the cord had prolapsed. And so it was turnover, get on your knees, doctor behind you, hold the baby inside and wheel off to an emergency crash C-section and within 10 minutes she was out. 
And so it was all rather chaotic. But I remember being very zen about it and knowing that if I were to panic, that would make it worse. And so I remember having a discussion with the anesthesiologist. Can I help you? Do I put my arm here? Is this going to help it along? And he goes, you're not supposed to do anything. And he goes, but actually, if you could hold it here, that would be helpful. So I said, okay. And we all sort of worked together and, and she was out. And so when they wheeled her by, my husband saw her before I ever did. <laughs> and, you know, that was that. And that was the story of, of her being born sort of very quickly and very suddenly. And, and there we were. It sounds from what you're describing that you got really good care, that you were in the right place at the right time, being properly monitored. But you were seeing the hospital in what for them would have been a crisis anyway, because they were in pandemic state, staff shortages, overwork, enormous demands and all the rest of it. What were the interactions like between you and your doctors, the nurses and and others? It's interesting because I would say the wonderful and attentive care for me sort of ended right there. And that's, I think, a part of the story that a lot of people will, will talk about in general in the best of circumstances when you have a baby, right? So you go for, what, the 12 prenatal checkups and then six weeks later you have the baby. Okay, you're fine, good, go, and, and that's it. And I think a lot of people sort of feel that that care for the mother sort of gets lost in, in the wayside in the best of circumstances. And I think in this case, because everything else was so chaotic. But also it was it was an odd moment to be in that hospital because, you know, we were in the hospital for 109 days after that too. So, you know, I was in the hospital every single day um, from the end of February all the way through the beginning of July of 2020. And so you saw sort of different aspects of it. Staff shortages, I, I don't really think so, to be honest. There was a lot of going to the cafeteria and seeing a lot of people sitting around because you have to also remember all elective surgeries were canceled. All of the normal things that hospitals did, all of the inpatient care, all of that kind of normal hustle and bustle of one of the nation's largest teaching hospitals actually is, sort of ceased as well. So this odd eeriness of silence and quiet, and then at the same time, certain parts of it being very busy, right? So there's, it was a kind of back and forth. But yeah, so I, I sort of remember going to be discharged probably, what, three days after she was born and asking, okay, you know, how does the, the follow-up work? And everyone said, oh, well, we don't really know because everything's a little crazy right now, but somebody will, will call you or send you an email. I never got a phone call. I remember probably two or three weeks later, seeing the the surgeon who'd actually done the C-section in passing in the NICU. And he goes, oh, hi, I've been meaning to like, see how you're doing. You're doing okay? And sort of just kind of like pokes at me for two seconds. And he goes, great, thumbs up and and have a day. And that was the extent of, of my post-op care. And then fast forward to not really feeling like I was recovering well, and being in a lot of pain, having a lot of different things. And I remember talking to one of the NICU nurses. So you were there. I was there probably anywhere between 8 to 12 hours a day. And my husband and I would switch off and, and we would just 
we didn't really leave her, our daughter's side. And so I said to one of the nurses, I said, you know, I just like kind of wish I could see a doctor because you have to remember going into the hospital meant leaving the midwife, midwifery care that I had been under behind going into their maternal fetal medicine practice and going to see doctors who I didn't know from Adam and also being a teaching hospital, the constant rotation of doctors. So I can tell you probably 15 to 20 different people over the course of three weeks between the time my daughter was born and, and finally delivered. So I actually, you know, the nurse suggested, she goes, well, why don't you make an appointment, you know, with the, the practice because they're in this hospital, you're here every day. And I was like, well, I wonder if that's a thing. And so I called and they said, oh, well, we're doing virtual appointments right now, unless you really have to come in. And I said, well, you know, it's quite an intimate thing to have someone just hold a cell phone at you <laughs> to inspect a, a C-section thing. And I also don't know who's sitting behind you at your desk while you're doing this. And I don't know. I said, there were so many, you know, variables that I was just like, well, okay, well, we'll talk to the woman. So I did the telehealth and I spoke to not even a doctor. I think it was some nurse practitioner, whatever the series of things were, and felt very brushed off. Fast forward, I finally got an appointment in the practice that delivered me, went inside, and I get in there, and there's a, a glucose drink on the counter. Now, anyone knows you normally get a glucose drink, you know, around 20, what, 5, 28 weeks of pregnancy to do your sugar test. And I'm like, why am I, why is this here? I said, well, maybe they just left it from the last patient. So in comes another doctor that I don't know from Adam. And she says to me, oh, okay, well, we're going to do your glucose test. You know, she goes, because you're 26 weeks pregnant. And I said, no, actually, it turns out that this practice delivered me at 26 weeks and my baby's over there on the other side of the hospital, the NICU. So we might want to reevaluate the chart. Needless to say, wasn't going to get the care <laughs> that I needed at that point. And I, I think that's where the ball really got dropped and continues to get dropped. And that, along with the rest of the experience, has informed a, a lot of the work that I do. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. So Kimberly, 109 days in an elite teaching hospital, one of the best in the world, and cer certainly if not the world, certainly in the US. And you're clearly thoughtful, observant individual, and you're observing how healthcare is functioning over that time. What were the standout things that were done well and the things that were done really badly? You've described certainly a lack of continuity of care or a lack of attention to detail in some aspects. What were the other things that you were observing as a patient? There was a sort of stopgap between protocol and humanity, if that makes sense. And so one of the things that we were insistent upon, which I suppose was kind of novel in the sense that we were met with surprise when it first happened, was we insisted on being part of rounds every day. And we said, this is what we're going to do. So we would normally 
not be there in person for morning rounds. So we would do them on the phone. And then when they would shift change in the evening, one of us would usually still be there. And so we would do those rounds. And so twice a day when my daughter's case was being discussed and, and the things that were going on, we were there. And one of the things that we sort of observed early on and, and kind of railed against, to be honest, was this stickler for, for protocol without it being applicable to the individual case. And so one of the, the big issues with any NICU baby is feeding, right? And so they normally don't, st- especially if they're a micropremie, right? So she was born weighing 680 grams. And so she was the tiniest little thing you ever saw, you know. And so they start out with a feeding tube and, and they go up incrementally as they're trying to grow them too, right? So there was this kind of insistence on it's going to be increased by this volume on this day and this moment. And we would say, well, isn't that kind of steep, right? You know, isn't this kind of a large increase to do from 12 hours to 24 hours to kind of go there. And we would sort of say, give her, give her another day, give her, give her another time, because we're talking about her. We're talking about my daughter. We're not talking about what your textbook says. We're not talking about what the protocol says. And one of the interesting things is because I'm the kind of person that degree or no degree, I'm going to read a study as well. I I spent 10 years in grad school before I finally finished. So I'd think that the level of reading comprehension is somewhere there. And I'm sitting there, you know, reading some of these studies and reading things and looking at how things like NEC are developing and then how some of these stomach issues that these micropremies are having and some of the literature that I'm looking at is saying this insistence on overfeeding, this insistence on pushing these feed goals through. And so I'm sitting there not only reliant on a maternal instinct, which normally we're the one who decides how much and 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 when and how a baby's getting food, right? Like that's that's usually one of those things that the mother has the luxury of deciding, first of all. And and then second of all is just a kind of, I guess, call myself a, a lay academic in that sense, right? Of of sort of, you know, an academic not necessarily in this field. And I'm reading things and I'm saying, well, there are differences of opinion here. Not everybody's on the same page. And I'd often ask why with regards to protocol. And I couldn't really get an answer. And I have a problem when you tell me, well, it's protocol and you tell me it's policy or you tell me it's just the way it's always been done. Well, I mean... If you'd have asked somebody in 1830, they'd say, well, we're just going to put leeches on somebody because that's the way we've always been done. And, and, you know, guess what? Like, maybe that wasn't the best plan. So I think there's a stopgap there in the sense of clinical practice. I think you have to be able to answer someone's why, right? There has to be a, a why to to this procedure or this method or this and it would be even the same when uh, they'd put her on various antibiotics because she, she'd go on to develop a staph infection that she got from being in the hospital in, in the first place. And you know, I remember saying, okay, well, I'm rather concerned 
with her her gut flora because I know that that is the genesis of someone's immune system and I know that this is a vital time in anyone's growth to develop it and so if you're sitting here with rampant course of antibiotics you know destroying her gut flora are they all necessary and there were many a times where they said well this is the full course I'd say okay but tell me has the sample come back. And so I know, are we at the 36 hour mark? Okay. Is it still growing? Are we? And a lot of the times no one had checked. And so they would say, oh, well, let me go check that. I said, well, let's go and check that before we keep her on a 10 day course when it could be a five day course and we could do what's better for her stomach. And so I think there's so much to be said for all of the progress we've made in Western medicine. But in my opinion, has that come at the expense of analytical clinical practice, right? Are we just following books or are we really practicing medicine for the individual? So am I looking at this person's individual case and saying, why am I doing this for them? Not just, this is what I do for this problem, right? Did you see anything that you thought was good or useful in terms of those 109 days and how things were unfolding for you? I think one of the greatest aspects and having spoken to other NICU parents as well is the nursing staff. There's a very human-centered approach to the way that they do a lot of things, right? And so I remember, and there's more of it, and I think depending on depending on the hospital, right? So if we're talking about a, a very large NICU, so probably, I don't know, 60 babies or plus at, at any given time, right? You know, yeah, it was a whole wing of a floor. It's not a small NICU in any way, shape, or form. So that the doctors that you would see came and went on rotation also because they were fellows too. So they would literally, I, I was there long enough that I saw different fellowships cycle back around. So I'd see a doctor, oh, I haven't seen you in a whole month. Oh, I was somewhere else. And now you're back. Oh, well, hi again, <laughs> you know. But because the nursing staff was there with more continuity, right, there was a different humanity with which they would approach things. And I think when we're talking about medicine with children, it's a very, very special and particular thing, especially babies, right? Because you are talking about a different emotional involvement. So you're talking about a patient that A, cannot articulate or advocate for themselves so that you've got a family there to do that. And, and you've got parents who are at their most vulnerable and concerned and emotionally heightened state humanly possible, right? You've got a newborn baby in the hospital. I don't think anybody needs to spell that out, right? And when there's this lack of humanity with regards to the care, it can feel for a parent as if attention's not being paid. And so when I'd have a doctor come up and, and not know my, my kid's name, you know, like I, I said, that that's there was moments, but I found with the nursing staff, not only did 
they know her name, but they knew that like these were her yellow pajamas and that she had worn them on Tuesday and she was gonna wear them on Wednesday. And that moment of humanity in such a sterile environment, because we have to be conscious of it, it is a hospital. There is an inherent sterility to the entire experience went a long way and it goes a long way in connection and I think it goes a long way in feeling as if everyone is on the same team and I think that's a really important thing for for any practitioner to be cognizant of right to say we are all pointed with our ships in the same direction. We have the same goal, which is for you to get well and for you to be treated, right? But if it doesn't feel like you're on the same team and it has this sort of adversarial aspect to it, I think that there can be so many stopgaps in care. And I think it's so important for any kind of provider to take that brief second to say hi I'm so and so are you the parent what's your name just it's you know and I know we're busy and I know we're frenzied and I know the world's a crazy place but five to ten seconds extra isn't going to change the whole day but it can change the entire relationship for the person that that you're speaking to right the journal of health design Fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. You were in the middle of a technically superb unit that was dealing with premature babies. The amount of technical know how that surrounded the care of those 60 babies that you're talking about would have been world class. We're talking about you know, machines that were measuring almost every single aspect of this child's physiology to make sure that she was thriving. Yet what mattered to you and what would have mattered to me was that the person that you met in that place knew your child's name, knew about the yellow pajamas and took the time to introduce themselves and better still, actually knew your name so that you felt that you're in that vulnerable state, you were cared for deeply and that it wasn't just about the machines. That's a wonderful way to summarize it. And I think that's part of it, right? And, and so being able to find that balance. And so we were very cognizant of the level of expertise that was brought to the table at each thing. But there was also moments because it was a teaching hospital where things were done two or three times because somebody needed to learn. And I'll give you an example of my daughter was diagnosed with uh, ROP. And so she had to do eye exams with, with some frequency. And I remember, you know, my husband coming home one day and he was livid. And I said, oh, you know what happened? And he said, well, the resident came and, and she did the eye exam because she did it. And then someone else came and said they were going to do it again. And he kind of thought maybe they had missed something. And then this third person came along. And if anybody's 
seen it done. It is done with a speculum. The baby cries. She would usually not be okay for about a day after. Sometimes she would Brady. Sometimes, you know, there was all these different things that that kind of would happen because they're so overly agitated, right? And so when the third person came along, my husband was going, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Well, why are we, you know, like, why are we redoing this again? Oh, you know, because how often do we get, you know, a 26-weeker and they need to to learn? And he goes, well, another day. <laughs> no, seeing how agitated she was and, and how it would literally sort of throw off feeds for a day or two. She would have, you know, small regressions because when you think about the sort of underdeveloped nervous system of a baby that young, right, like that kind of agitation really does affect all of the different things that are that are going on. So there was a moment where once again, that humanity kind of got lost because you wanted you know, three students to to be able to know how to do this exam. And, and you know, we had a moment of saying, well, no, that's, that's, that's kind of not what we're gonna, okay. But then I, you know, we say to ourselves, what had we not been there? Had we not been there, would they have, they have gone ahead and done it? Absolutely. What healthcare does really well is when you've got a prolapse cord and you've got a woman who needs to have an emergency section within 10 minutes, get that baby out. It does it really well. But what it doesn't do is provide care for those who are not in that state. In other words, for people who are not in an emergent situation where there is the need for some give and take. And that's where I want to go next in our conversation. You talked a bit about that, that the care, once the baby was born, as far as some people were concerned, that was it over. Talk a little bit about what that experience was like. I think jarring would be the most, the best word, best adjective to describe it. So when I was first hospitalized before she was born, I had people come to do rounds, what, three times a day and the monitoring and the different people and and a nutritionist and the people from <laughs> even cardiology, right? There's all, so, you know, you would see how many ever people that she would see. And like I said, after she was born, there was one very impersonal telehealth visit and a follow-up where they thought I was still pregnant, right? So it was, it was, one of those things where I had felt that there was very little care being done. And, and I'll even fast forward to, to three years later, I, I still have severe pain. They've done quite a bit of testing to figure out what's wrong. And everybody has really just at this point wrung their hands of it. They've done MRIs and sonograms and everything else. And no one really has answers. but. The more research that I do, I realize, yeah, in those first two months afterwards, I should have probably had pelvic floor therapy. I should have probably had referrals to some specialists that I didn't write, that all of this sort of ball that was dropped along the way led to where we are now. I'll say that it was probably a year and a half, almost two years after my daughter was born, and I went to, to see an OB where we live now and she had my my files from 
from, you know, from the hospital. And she said, oh, well, did you know that your entire placenta was necrotic? And I was like, well, no, I, that's news to me. (laughs) You know, and she goes, and did you know that this incision is really much higher than it would normally be? I'm not really sure why the notes aren't very clear. Did you know X, Y, and Z? And so all of these things were like (laughs) revelations to me. And I said, well, how did I not know any of this? And I'm saying, well, because I never even spoke with a surgeon after my daughter was born, right? And so all of these things. And so I, I wonder, you know, it's one of those things where you sort of wonder. And I'm thinking, well, would a placenta being necrotic have led to why she came so early? Like, would that have maybe been something that someone should have looked into? You know, all of these different things. And so I think that experience has driven a lot of the work that I do these days because I want mothers to to be informed and I want other people to be informed in the sense of these are the kind of questions you should be asking and if someone doesn't refer you to a pelvic floor therapist then you have to go and find one yourself and these are the ways in which you can advocate for yourself. Your work is essentially trying to empower people to speak for themselves, to advocate for themselves. In the wake of everything we'd gone through with my daughter, I, I decided to, to start podcasting and All the Unexpected was born. And so All the Unexpected was a kind of play on the traditional what to expect. So when a woman is, is pregnant, they tell you all these things will happen in this very neat order, right? Okay, you know, you're a size of a cantaloupe this week and this is what's going on. And it's all sort of very ordered and laid out for you. But what happens when none of that goes to plan? What happens when everything unexpected occurs? And so that was the the birth of all the unexpected. And so it's gone from a podcast to a sort of robust web destination that has everything from articles about health to healthy living recipes, because caring for our, our children with nutrition is a huge thing and I'm an American it's it's a dire states over here <laughs> with regards to that and we also have branched out into documentary film and so two of the the films that we've done look at the history of race and medicine and looking how we arrived in a situation where maternal mortality rates for black women for indigenous women for women of color in general in the US are twice to three times the average on on the whole, on, even on global scale. And so really talking about how we've gotten here to the current state of affairs, but also what we can do as families, as individuals, as mothers, to be aware of what's going on, to take charge of our own health care, to ask the questions, to know that you have a seat at this table. And if someone is telling you, well, do this thing or take this medication or this is it, that you have the, the space and the right to say, well, well, why? <laughs> you know, and, and maybe there's another option. And you've got the right to a second and third and fourth opinion because sometimes they can be very different, right? And all of those those moments where 
I want to give people a space to be empowered and armed literally with with information and with good information. It is now recognized that healthcare or medicine is advancing at such a rate that it's doubling the amount of information that's available or that's being re-evaluated every two to three years. It's worrying because there's nobody that can keep up with that level of change. What they do need is partnership with patients who are well-informed and who are able to help them. A longer story aside, I was actually fired by an OB early in my pregnancy. And one of the the phrases that she used for me was like, well, I don't have time to learn something new. It was rather alarming to hear someone say that because I'm, I'm set there. And I am also, I'm, I'm an historian by trade. So I am someone who does an extensive amount of research on everything to the point where I end up down rabbit holes very often on, you know, tangents of, of research and things like that. And so if someone says to me, well, this is the protocol or this is the reason, I will say, please send me that link. And I will sit there reading the medical journal and I will sit there looking up the few terms that I don't know. <laughs> and I will make sure that I understand what you're saying. And I'm going to come back to you with notes. And I know that, you know, when we were in the hospital and we'd have these monthly update meetings and they'd talk about the progress and they'd talk about things and I'd sort of wait for them to to give their spiel. And then I'd raise my hand and say, okay, well, so these were the three studies that I read <laughs> and this was the consensus. And this is what I my takeaway is from it. Am I Am I wrong? Am I misinformed? And more often than not, was met with the kind of, oh, these people again, (laughs) look. And it is refreshing and shocking to hear someone say that it should be a partnership and it should be a moment where if someone comes to you and and says, what's the reason why? Um, I'll give you an example. So my mother ended up being hospitalized with pneumonia at the, what, in the sort of end of 2021. And I remember having a discussion with a resident one night because I was, you know, on the phone. We're not even in the same city anymore. And so I was on the phone and they were putting on a protocol of a whole series of things. And I'd read quite a few studies about why we wouldn't want to put somebody with rheumatoid arthritis and other severe immune issues on this protocol. And so I had a very lengthy discussion and I said, you know, well, what's the reasoning? Once again, I asked the why and he couldn't give me why. Well, this is the protocol. And I said, well, that's an unacceptable answer. I said, because if you're telling me that the one steroid is expanding the lungs and this other medication is doing that, then this third one, which damages kidneys, seems redundant. And so I'm going to need you to discontinue the dose and I'm going to need to speak with someone who can give me the why in the morning. Fast forward to the next morning, I get a call from the head of telemetry at one of New York's premier hospitals telling me that they hadn't considered the double usage of those things and why we might want to do that and that they will be reevaluating said protocol. And so <laughs> I, I appreciated the, the humility it took to do that. And I appreciated the fact that we were actually having a conversation 
But unfortunately, that approach of humility, that approach of saying, guess what, there might be things I need to still learn or need to continue to learn is incredibly rare in a field where it should be the norm. The rate of progress is so rapid that people will very quickly come to realize that anyone who says, I don't have time to learn something new is essentially saying, I don't have time to practice medicine. Living in a country that has sort of one of the highest prescription rates in the world, I think we're probably only bested by Japan, where I also spent five years living. It's hard because we tend to just throw throw the, the sample that the nice lady with her luggage came along and, and dropped off this morning at the patient and say, well, try that. Oh, it caused this side effect. We'll try that to remedy that. And I think there's there's an over-reliance on, on that too. And there's a bit of a, a sort of quick fix mentality with regards to it. And so one of the issues that I think we're facing is we're saying, well, let me just put a Band-Aid on a, a festering wound as opposed to exploring why it may be infected in the first place. Kimberly Reyes, it's been an honor spending time with you, a great deal of wisdom in all that you've shared. You are very well qualified to speak on this subject, 109 days in a premier teaching hospital, observing as you have done, reflecting as you have done, is invaluable research. Thank you for taking the time. And thank you for having me. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.